0: begin reading at verse 1 we will read the entire chapter remember o lord what has befallen us look and see our reproach our inheritance has been turned over to strangers and our houses to aliens we have become orphans without a father or mo- our mothers are like widows We have to pay for our drinking water, our wood comes to us at a price, our pursuers are at our necks, we are worn out, there is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us, there is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill and youth stumbled under loads of wood. Elders are gone from the gate. Young men from their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of the mountain Zion, which lies, desolate foxes prowl in it. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to you, O Lord that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we come before you this morning, and we recognize, O God, as was reminded in the Psalms and here again in Lamentations, that you, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation, and it is with that faith that we come before you in our unworthiness, in our weakness, in our frailty, in our sin, and we recognize, oh God, that that it is because of our sin that woe comes to us, Lord. It's because of our, our rebellious hearts and our stubborn natures that often lead us astray and cause us to do the very things that uh, harm us, Lord. And we look around us, Lord, and we see the harm that is in our world. We see the suffering that goes on in our society. We think about the, 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 uh, the pain of grief, Lord, that so many have experienced over the past year with the loss of loved ones from COVID, Father, and just the, the premature deaths of so many uh, loved ones, Father, the perception, O oh God, that that life is spinning out of control and that there is no remedy, Lord. And there's no hope in, in Washington or in Trenton. And we look to ourselves, Father, and we see nothing but sin and we see despair. And so, Father, we pray that we might catch a glimpse of our Savior, who was the man of sorrows and the one who embraced our mess and carried our sin to our cross, that the, the chastisement, our peace was upon him and so lord we pray that we might we might uh, be gripped with a, a vision of him this morning and that even as we learn to lament father that we would lament that to cry is human but to lament is christian to turn to you in our sorrow to turn to you in faith trusting you that you do reign forever And so, Lord, we commit ourselves into your care and keeping asking for your help and understanding, even as we seek to apply this word to our lives. May your spirit teach us and may we grow thereby, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In looking at meditating for this message this morning, I came across this blog by a young widow and i thought it was very appropriate given the circumstances of what we're looking at in terms of sorrow and grief and lament the the blog was actually called the modern lament many times in my own story of lament i found myself on the closet floor i'm not sure why or how that seemed to be the place i went to when i was in the deepest grief i need to see if that's on i would crumble on the floor and end up in some form of the fetal position asking why this happened. At first, my husband's clothes were a great comfort to me. I would go in the closet and touch them, try to remember what it must have felt like to touch his skin. The longer time went on, though, I started to resent his clothes. Every time I went into the closet, it became a reminder of the person that was no longer with me. They were taunting me with his absence. And one day I got really angry, and one by one I started tearing them straight down off the hanger en masse, yelling wildly and violently and kicking the clothes. And at the end of the tirade, a small mountain of clothes were left in the wake, a testament to the hole that he had left in my heart. With every shirt I pulled down, I would say, why did you take him from me? On another day, I took his best microphone stand into the garage and hit things with each blow, thinking, why have you forsaken me, God? Why are you punishing me? Do I really deserve this? Why did you take him from me? Do you even love me? You have taken my future, my children. Why? Why did he have to die? And as I read that, I was reminded... That to cry is human. But to lament is Christian. We've walked together these four last few weeks looking at this book of Lamentations as a model, if you will, of suffering as a call to experience life in its fullest understanding that life is not just always going to be a journey that is marked by periods of happiness and joy, but as an elder once said to me, kind of tongue-in-cheek, he said, you know, life is just really a series of calamities punctuated by disasters. And I thought to myself at the time that there was a profound wisdom in that truth, that we look at troubles as though they are the exception. We come to expect life to be only occasionally difficult and that our problems and the struggles we are really supposed to be just the abnormal. And how many times this past year have we been told that we need to embrace the new normal? But I wonder if that's really the problem that we have with grief and sorrow. That we look at grief and sorrow as the exception rather than the norm. But what we find in the scriptures is that ever since the casting out in the Garden of Eden, that we are told that in that moment when God pronounced judgment upon Adam and Eve, he basically laid out that life would be hard. If I were to just summarize the the, the judgment that God pronounced on Adam and Eve, he said life is going to be hard. It's going to be hard from the moment you come into this world. Because in childbirth, there's going to be a great deal of pain. And in your relationships, there's going to be frustration and struggle. In your vocation and the way you make ends meet, it is going to be cursed. And life will be always less than what it should have been. And of course... When we consider the, the rightness of that judgment, when we consider the fact that, that it was our rebellion and it has continued to be our rebellion, that's been at the source of so much trouble that the entire creation groans and travails. Why? Because by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death is passed upon all men. Why? Because all have sinned. It's not that Adam is solely to blame for the predicament we find ourselves in. Every son and daughter of Eve and son of Adam has continued the progression down through the ages of willfully disobeying God and choosing to seek that which does not not satisfy as the idols of our heart. And yet, when we look at we look at Lamentations and we look at the Lament Psalms and we consider what it means to be a Christian, what we find is is that there is a turning to God in faith, that when we have accepted Christ as our Savior, when we've recognized the man of sorrows, the one who made grief his personal friend, when we see him as the solution to our, our heartache and the answer to our heart's cry, When we put our trust in him for our salvation, there's a shift in perspective. As we have seen in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're no longer simply cursed to live under the sun. But rather we get a divine perspective. And we begin to learn that even in our sorrow and in our grief, that lamenting is a turning to God. Not a turning away from God but rather turning to God, that even the question, why God, is a turning to him. And an expression of faith, because when we ask the question, we're calling to mind that the world is not the way things should be. And we're reminded that God is good, and that the world is in contradistinction to that fact on so many occasions and the very question affirms the goodness and the justice of god because it's not the way things should be and as we've journeyed through lamentations we've been confronted by a profound grief a profound expression of grief grief but We also have seen that it is the voice of God speaking through our pain, that God uses the pain of Lamentations and wants Jeremiah to pen these words so that it will be a remembrance throughout all the history of Israel and then for us to instruct us, to teach us. We've been reminded in Lamentations chapters one and two that it's the sin and the sorrow that go hand in hand, that Disobedience brings judgment and wrath. That it's the sovereign God who has brought about the calamity that we find in lamentations. That it is the sovereign God who has done this, that even though there are secondary causes, the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and the armies and the men and, and the women and the, the, the uh tragedy that takes place to the men and women of, of Jerusalem, that these calamities ultimately at the hand of a sovereign god but in chapter 3 we are confronted by the savior who suffers alongside us and we see literally the idea that there is a, a steadfastness of the lord's mercy and last week as we looked at chapter 4 we saw that that sin and sorrow touch every aspect of our lives and that if we place our confidence or try to build our lives on any foundation other than the foundation that is laid in Christ, we're doomed to disappointment. But now we come to Lamentations chapter 5, the end of the journey. And what do we find in Lamentations? Well, the first thing that we need to observe is that Lamentations 5 is different from the other four chapters. Just as chapter 3 stood out in its kind of uniqueness at the center of this book of Lamentations and how there was a tripling of the acrostic, here in chapter 5 there's no attempt at the acrostic anymore. Where chapters one, two, three, and four all began, each stanza, each verse of the 22 verses or the 66 verses began in some form of the Hebrew alphabet. Here, that breaks down completely. We might ask ourselves, why does the author do that? Why does the author so meticulously construct the first four lamentations so that It's apparent to the Hebrew reader that there is a structure and there's an order in the midst of the chaos. But here now, at the end of it all, it all falls apart. Well, there's no accident. It's not like it just randomly happened. But you see, this this chapter begins and ends with a prayer. It begins with and ends with a prayer. Verse 1, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. And verse 21, restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. And you see here, there's no time for formality. There's no time for structure. Chaos has overcome, and there is no longer any effort to impose order upon that chaos. This is the heart cry. This is the heart cry. Gone is the structured, formal imposition of order upon the chaos. Here is simply the heart cry of the community. It's as though the weight of grief has exhausted the author. He no longer has the energy to try to put order to this. You'll also notice that it's much shorter, and there's almost like a frenetic pace. It's almost as if he's breathless, firing out every list of grievance, kind of encapsulating in these few short verses all that's gone before. And what does he say? He says, Lord, remember. And now it's not Lady Jerusalem, now it's not just the prophet or the narrator. But it's the entire community. It's the entire body. They are saying, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. It's as though the prophet has joined hands with Lady Zion. And Lady Zion and the prophet have embraced the entire community. And together they are crying out to God, Lord, remember. Now, this is an interesting thing, right? Because... You know, you step back and you think intellectually and you think philosophically and you think theologically, there's probably no more nonsensical prayer that you can pray than, Lord, remember. Right? I mean, we acknowledge and confess theologically that God is omniscient. God is omniscient. He knows everything all the time. There is not a single piece of information that God can learn. He is unteachable. There is no counsel that can be given him. There is no surprise with God. There's no new information. Every discovery, every invention of man that has been discovered for the last 6,000 years, God has already known and has known it fully and completely since before the world began. From all eternity. Do you understand God can learn nothing? I just read this morning that there's a scientist out of Princeton who has discovered a fusion reaction that can be used to launch and, and propel uh, spacecraft probably 10 times faster than any known method we have today. Old news to God. There is nothing God can learn. There is nothing God can be taught. There is no surprises for God, and so in one sense we look at this and what does He mean when He says "Remember"? Like could God forget? Could God forget anything? But see, when we when we see this and we see this in the Psalms, we see it. In the Bible we see it in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis where it says in, about Noah that God remembered Noah. It's such a funny verse, right? Like was God in heaven doing something and he goes, "Oh, wait, there's Noah sitting in that ark for so long just wandering around this ocean of the you know the planet earth." No. It's not like that at all. But you see when the community of praise, Lord, remember us. They're not saying that that God suddenly lost track of them. It's that God's behavior toward them is as if he forgot them. In other words, in the community's mind, the way things are going right now, it's as if God has forgotten us. Now, that's profoundly instructive, right? Because there are many times in our lives where we go through experiences and the thought crosses our mind, has God forgotten us? When there is frustration or failure or a striving for something and it seems as though it's not going to be materialized, Now, intellectually, we know in our heads that God doesn't forget us. We know, for example, He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We know in our minds that God can't be taught anything, learn anything, has never surprised. But in our hearts and the way we feel, there's a disconnect. And isn't it interesting? that the Lamentations doesn't say, rehearse to yourself the theological truth of God's omniscience and you'll be okay. No, the Lamentations say, Lord, remember us. Because it feels like you have forgotten us. What I love about Lamentations is it does not It does not uh, ever question why the things happen, in a sense, because as in verses 15 to 17, it reminds us again that these things have happened because we have sinned. And of course, we can get into a big discussion about punishment and the believer and how there's no punishment for the believer, that there's no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. And believe me, that is gospel truth. God does not punish us for our sins. In fact, he doesn't even treat us, the psalmist says, as our sins deserve. Any woe that we go through, whatever trouble we have in our life, believe me, it's not because you deserve it. You deserve far worse. It's not that he's treating us as our sins deserve. But we do live in a world full of sin. And we do live in a world where where even God's people are chastened. We even live in a world where God will allow some of the most profound grief into our lives to expose the false foundations we've built our life upon. Woe to us, for we have sinned. And of course there is a grief Paul talks about in Corinthians, a godly grief that leads us to repentance. That actually leads us to life. But notice as he's rehearsed all of the sorrows that they've gone through and he acknowledges the uh, the community acknowledges their role in these things, that there is an expression of trust. There's a, A choosing to trust. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Now, again, I want to point this out to you. This is very profound. Lamentations does not end with verse 19. It's interesting, right? Because I think many times as Christians we would end our lament with verse 19. We would go through the prayer. We would ask God to intervene. we rehearse perhaps our complaint. And then we'd remind ourselves, Lord, you're in charge. You're on the throne. It's all good. But lamentations doesn't end that way. Notice verse 20. Why do you forget us forever? And why do you forsake us so long? Do you see what the author did there? Lord, you rule forever. Then why are you forgetting us forever? Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forsake us so long? It's almost as if Jeremiah is using the very theological truth that's the foundation of his life as an appeal to God's intervention. And it's a powerful reminder to us that our grief is dynamic. It's not static. And it's not a one time fix all truth that's going to get us through it. But then we come to verse 21. And I believe that in this prayer, what starts out as a call for God's mercy to intervene, remember us, O Lord. Look at all the trouble we're going through. Look at all the misery we're experiencing. Just, you know, remember us, Lord. And then we come to verse 21, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. You know, we we look at verses 15 and, and 16, and we think the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has turned to mourning. And so often when we go through trouble and tribulation, it's the joy and the dancing that we miss. And so often when we come to God with our prayers and we ask him to remember us, What we want him to do is to restore the joy, restore the dancing. Now, I'm speaking metaphorically, right? I'm saying that what we want is the good feelings. We want the positive experiences. We want there to be peace in our homes. We want good relations with our children, our in-laws, with our neighbors, with our coworkers. We want our jobs to be meaningful and significant. We want to be recognized for our accomplishments and our achievements. We want people to feel sorry for us when we go through hard times. We want pity. We want sympathy. We want others to see that we're valuable and meaningful. In other words, whatever has caused our grief and sorrow and distress, we want God to bring us back to the place just before that moment. Verse 21 gives us an insight. The the prophet says, restore us to yourself, O Lord. I came across this quote by Andrew Murray this morning. Christ is all. In the eternal counsel of God, in the redemption on the cross, as king on the throne in heaven and on earth, in the salvation of sinners, in the building up of Christ's body, in the care of individuals, Christ is all. And you see, I think that ultimately what God desires out of every grief, out of every suffering, out of every painful experience we go through, is that we see that he is what we long for. That he is the safe haven. That what we really want restored, ultimately, is not the garden, but the God who was in the garden. So often we want to just go back to the garden. And God is like, no, you don't understand. What made the garden, the garden, was the fact that I walked with you in the cool of Eden. And what made the garden Eden was me. As the psalmist prayed, David, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We come to the end of lamentations, and it ends with a a question of uncertainty. Unless, Lord, you've utterly rejected us and are exceedingly angry with us, And this is the difference that I believe is the profound difference between lamentations that the Jews experienced in the destruction of Jerusalem and every lamentation since the cross and resurrection of Christ. Because the question that is uttered there, unless you've utterly rejected us, is answered, no, he hasn't. He didn't. He didn't forsake his people then, and he won't forsake his people now that God wanted it to be very clear to us how much his love was and the extent of that love. And he demonstrated that love, Paul said, by Christ dying for us. Even while we were yet sinners, without hope, helpless, Christ died for us. And his anger, as we were reminded in the breaking of bread this morning, has been completely and forever satiated In the sacrifice of his son. That those who are in Christ. There is no condemnation now. There is no condemnation. For he paid in full the debt. He is the atoning sacrifice. The propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only. But as John says. For the sins of the whole world. Yes we continue to live in a world cursed by sin. And we continue to struggle under that curse as we bear from day to day the sorrow of living in this fallen world. But we know, we know he has not utterly rejected us. He cannot, for he cannot reject his son. His son was rejected once and for all. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that everyone who has ever lived, who's in Christ would never have to say those words for he is not going to forsake us. As Hebrews says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Even though it might feel like it and even though his face may be hidden from us. Lamentations gives us permission to grieve. It shows us a way to pour out our hearts to the Lord It shows how to hope in the midst of despair, to pray in the midst of grief, to trust when everything around us tells us to run and hide. In that same article that I read about that widow, she quoted this author saying, things falling apart is a kind of testing and also a kind of healing. We think that the point is to pass the test or overcome the problem, but the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. And then they come together again and fall apart again. It's just like that. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, for relief, for misery, for joy. And she concluded her blog by saying, what if God can use us even at our lowest points? When we are the most confused, the most broken, don't have all the answers and still hold on. What if we keep talking to God and ask the hard questions? The most precious gift we have to offer is a gracious spirit and a contrite heart. Being in that vulnerable state, a place where you can be intimate with the spirit, where your hearts are broken, your pain is real. When you have nothing else to hold on to, this is when we realize that this pain is the beginning of your transformation. Our human story is built on this dualism, from suffering to hope, from pain to joy, from grief to resilience, from death to life. We cannot have one without the other. And as the author Vogrup writes, lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting in God's sovereignty. Let us pray. Our gracious God, as we've concluded this series on lamentations, we pray that you might encourage our hearts. First, that in our sorrow, in our grief, in our loss, in our questions, in our struggles, that we would turn to you. That we would not turn from you, but that we would turn to you and bring our questions, our griefs, our sorrows, our laments to you and lay them at your feet. I pray that we would remember, even as we ask you to remember us, that we would remember you, remember your promises, remember who you are, and that we would trust you and choose to trust, choose to rely on the love you have for us. We ask this for your glory, God, that we might be sent forth into a hurting, dying world as sheep, In the midst of wolves, may we be as harmless as doves and wise as serpents. For your glory we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.